If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, welcome back, beautiful humans. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. So glad that you all can join us for another episode. We've got another special guest um, waiting for uh, for us to interview and have a, have a chat with. So, uh, But as always, first, before we do that, we're just going to check in with each other. So um, I don't know. I feel like I haven't. It's like two weeks have gone by. I haven't I haven't seen Denisha here or talk to talk to you really. Just a yeah. little bit in between prepping. So how, how have you been? What's up? <laughs> oh, it's been a whirlwind for the past two weeks, but things have been going good. Um, you know, I feel like I always just say, just work. <laughs> it's the same old thing. Work. <laughs> I really do. I need to have some fun. So, you know, for my Baltimore people, please get me out of the house. But that's pretty much it. Working and yeah. Have you done anything with like social justice activism or anything like that lately? Everything that I do now is like pretty much offline because of my group is in New York. So we do a lot of work that is based in New York. Um, and so this past um, past week, um, you know, we've been dealing with the differences with the cops in the subway. Um, today, there was a call because there was a teenager who actually went missing and was abducted off of the street, which is not really like the type of things that we normally do. But, you know, this is where like community comes together and there's like this rally and cry. Um, and she was abducted off the street in the Bronx today. And so, you know, the the folks were there on the ground just trying to make sure that the community felt support. Um, but yeah, I do all the things behind the scenes helping out with the verbiage and stuff like that but I haven't done anything in Baltimore and I'm, I need to find my fit in and find my home here too since I've been gone for so long from New York yeah yeah I'm sure it's hard when you've got such close connections up there and then moving you know yeah and that's my you know mm-hmm. and, the, and that's essentially my justice family so I've been with them for the past what five years or so so that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. My yeah. loyalties have been lying there. <laughs> and plus, I really do believe in the work that we're doing. Like, you know, we do a lot of work around criminal justice reform. And um, and so I, I hold that really heavy to my heart and just making sure to show up for for the community. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I text you a lot and you're, you're like, oh, I'm on a train to New York. So I have yeah. plenty of time to read. I was like, oh, cool. Uh-huh. I might be going back this weekend, too, so just to see everyone. Mm -hmm. Neat. So what about you? What have you been up to? Um, It's funny. Usually, I don't usually say work, but it has been work. Um, Mm -hmm. Finishing up the the semesters for teaching. 
And now it's like going to be a month off straight from everything, from life completely. So it's going to be great. It feels so weird. I don't know what to do with my time. It's, um, <laughs> I think I actually watched TV for the first time without having it on in the background while doing something else today for the first time. It was really weird. I almost felt like I wasn't being productive or being like constructive with my time. It was, I don't know. So there's that balance between finding, um, you know, time to, to relax. I don't know what that, that looks like. I wonder if a lot of people experience that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you will now in the next 30 days or so. Right. Right. That's nice. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have so, to let yeah. us know what you decide. <laughs> and I want to know what shows that you're watching too. <laughs> what? What? Hang on. What? I started watching the uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel on Amazon Prime. Okay. I heard a couple uh, people say things about that. And there's three seasons that are out right now. It's good. It's good. It's not bad. It's about a female comedian um, decades ago. I don't know what decade it's set in, what time period, but it's like, I would say like 40s, 50s, something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. So, um, but it was unheard of, you know, in that time. So if you're thinking about how culturally we've changed, it's really, that, that's how I sit there and I look at it. It's not, you can't just enjoy anything anymore. There's an analysis that comes along with it too. So, but it's good. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. So for our <laughs> listeners, tonight we will be talking to Evelyn Gould. Um, and Evelyn's going to walk us through living our values. And for those who don't know, but I'm sure plenty of you do know, Evelyn is a clinical behavior analyst and a research associate um, at the Child and Adolescent OCD Institute at McLean Hospital. And she is an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Um, so for you who are just tuning in, um, McLean Hospital is a residential and partial hospitalization program for children and adolescents struggling with treatment, refractory OCD and related disorders. Evelyn has so much experience working with families and children with autism and other learning and behavioral challenges across settings. And she is a clinical consultant for First Steps for Kids in Los Angeles and the New England Center for OCD and Anxiety in Boston. Evelyn also is engaged uh, and actively involved in research on parent and practitioner training, clinical assessment, and treatment design and behavioral interventions for parents and children. Um, So as you can tell, Evelyn has a large plethora of expertise. Um, (laughs) And that's not even all. Like I could keep going with the amount of things that Evelyn does. Um, And Evelyn, I'll let you add anything else that you feel is necessary to your bio, but um, yeah, I'll just tell you a little bit about how I um, met Evelyn. We met in Baltimore at a boot camp, and we've kind of been joined at the hip ever since. I've been lucky enough to be able to talk to her very often about, you know, what she's going to talk to us about tonight, which is living our values. And Evelyn has been, um, you know, a partner in trying to merge act the act um, processes together with thinking about how we view um, ourselves in terms of diversity, equity, and how we can um, utilize that to better um, ourselves and our field. And so that's really going to be, you know, what she joins us here with tonight. Um, Erin, how did you meet Evelyn? Same way. 
same way, <laughs> same, same way, same place. Uh, it's kind of cool. I've been waiting for this episode to happen, not because of the content, just to have all three of us together, because Evelyn was the one that introduced you and I mm-hmm. um, to each other because we both um, connected with her at the boot camp and then, um, and then have, uh, uh, you know, we both had the same interests. We both had a lot of the same challenges that arose and um, from that specific event. And so um, we've all been in contact and in a variety of different ways. And I, I think it was um, this past May at ABAI when then uh, it was the first time we all three, along with Kristen, did something together um, and did that. Um, I don't know, was this, is that called a symposium? symposium. Still like, okay, yep. thank you. I <laughs> still don't get those right. Um, so it was pretty cool to, to for that to come full circle. And now, um, you know, that idea that we had thrown out like a year ago about the podcast to come full, come full circle too. So it's pretty neat to see that there was an issue and now all these things have happened since then. And then you all presenting constantly together. It's so cool to see that you are joined at the hip. It's awesome. <laughs> it's been really fun. And, you know, Erin, I think that symposium was still, is still one of my favorites ever. Yeah. Why? I just remember feeling just so just couldn't stop grinning about it just the whole way through listening to you and Kristen and Denisha and then just just feeling so inspired and I think just because maybe it's because it was the beginning of a lot of journeys but I, I don't know it was just everything that I hoped it would be and I just felt so excited and energized and and just I don't know thrilled it just really thrilled me I just yeah so I still consider it one of my favorites <laughs> and I love that one of it's one of your favorites and there were like 10 people in the audience because we had the yeah. worst time slot yeah. <laughs> and like the yeah. most massive I'm like room. a 300 person stadium <laughs> and, then, and then like 20 people I think but it um yeah at like what 7 30 in the morning or something like that it was the worst slot but I, I, yeah i it's still like the one of my favorites ever maybe my favorite ever I thought it was just thrilling yeah yeah it was I wasn't even supposed to be up there I realized there's a lot of flexibility breaking all the rules yeah yeah but yeah I, I just remember some of the stuff that that uh Denisha said um mm-hmm that really I think spoke to a very large part of the audience in terms of like committed action and being mindful and present, um, you know, and just your thoughts. Um, and you said something about behavior. What was that quote again? Like, you know, we're talking about Skinner saying we need to save the world or something like that. And how, if, uh-huh. if we, we can't, how can we save the world? if We can't save our field. Mm-hmm. You know, what and was how that? Can we save? So yeah, it's a uh, Skinner said, you know, how can, why are we not saving the world? And I said, how can we uh, save the world if we can't even save our field? And how can we save our field if we can't even save ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's just, you know, talking about the personal responsibility that I feel is necessary in order for us to make those larger changes to our field. Um, there has to be some type of personal connection to the values that we've um, created as behavior analysts. So, and in order to do that, in order to save our field, <laughs> there has to be something inside that wants you to do that as well. So, yeah, definitely. That was, I really did enjoy that time. I remember just being extremely nervous. I've been nervous this entire journey. <laughs> I talk about it all the time, but um, that was like the first of many, obviously. But, um, you know, just going over 
those slides like <laughs> a thousand times um, and still getting up there and being so nervous that I had to read the entire thing. <laughs> but um, I'm glad that, you know, Evelyn, there's just something just very beautiful about people's spirits. And like Evelyn is just one of those people that you, I mean, I met her and she's just like, yeah, like, let's do this. And then, yeah, let's connect with more people that want to do this thing. Um, and, and I feel like folks that have that type of personality are just spirit and aura about them. Like, you know, we, we should not take those type of people for granted. Like, um, so Evelyn, I just, you know, I always tell you, but I just love you so much. And I'm glad that <laughs> <laughs> we've been able to do this work together. And even though it's been hard and, you know, you'll talk more about doing the hard stuff later, but, um, we still stay committed through the frustration and even the tears. So, yeah. Well, it's been a real privilege. And can I just say, I've been listening to your podcast and I was like listening to your podcast in my car and being like, oh, that would be the coolest to be on that podcast. Oh, <laughs> that's so cool. Not thinking at all that I would be on it. And then you're like, you want to come on the podcast? I'm like, oh my God, who me? <laughs> I feel so privileged to be invited to the space so thank you so much I really genuinely mean that it's like thrill it's so exciting um it means a lot to me so thank you thank Aww. you for being here yes it means a lot that it means a lot to you <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's I guess let's get into it um oh before we do that Evelyn did I miss anything do you want to tell our listeners anything else about you? I don't think so. I think I have my feet in a lot of camps, um, but primarily I think the information you shared paints a picture that I'm prim I'm a clinician, I'm very much in the trenches my whole career um, doing the work um, with clients. Um, I also do do some training and supervision and things like that. And of course, have my feet in the research academic world a little bit. Um, but my heart is in the clinical side of things. So I'm definitely very much an advocate for our field, even that side of the diversity, <laughs> diversifying um, within our field and um, respect and honor and seats at the table for clinical clinicians as well as academics. Um, I could get on a rant about all kinds of things related to that, but um, that wasn't what you asked me. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I don't think there's anything else I would add to that. I could uh, just talk and talk and talk. So I'm waffling now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's get into it. I know that like Aaron said, we wanted to have you on the show for such a long time. So I feel like we have plenty of questions to ask you. Um, and I guess I'll start by talking a little bit about um, our, I guess, our code of ethics and what we know as behavior analysts in the field um, in terms of diversity. So right now, you know, if you are a behavior analyst, you adhere to ethical standards. And in our code of ethics, there is mention of diversity. Um, if you are a member of ABAI, there is a diversity statement. Um, Evelyn, can you talk to our listeners a little bit more about the standard that is in place for clinicians and just behavior analysts in general? And um, yeah, just, just tell us a little bit about what you think about the current standards we have. Um, I guess 
I'm sort of struggling with the fact that we do have mention of the need for behavior analytic practitioners to attend to contextual variables related to cultural diversity um, and to be concerned about that and to be sensitive to that. However, there's no actual requirement to demonstrate competency in those areas. So that's my concern. And the same with having at the ABA, ABAI did come out with a diversity policy last year. So we've only had one for a year, which I mean, come on, <laughs> it's 2019. But again, that's a statement. So that's a statement saying we, this is what we care about. We care about diversity. We care about um, cultural sensitivity, cultural competency at, at some level. But again, no directions in terms of what that, how that should look. How should we demonstrate competency or demonstrate that we're actually moving towards that value, um, actually behaving in ways that are in line with that value? It's not data. It's just an instruction or a statement saying, we should care about this, you should care about this. And um, I don't think that that's good enough for us as behavior analysts or, and you know, certainly as a behavior analyst, just saying you care about something doesn't mean anything. And really in terms of, are you actually doing the things, um, you know, we could all say, well, we know we shouldn't eat a ton of chocolate all the time, but then go and eat a bunch of chocolate. So really saying that, you know, you shouldn't do something to, or you should do something doesn't necessarily change behavior. Um, so I'm back to the BCBA or BACB, um, standards or ethical guidelines those are guidelines again they're saying like when you're with a family or delivering services you should be thinking about these things um, but there's no not that I'm aware of it's certainly not I don't think it's not in the visa in the verified course sequence or as a requirement to learn about these things um, it's certainly on the it's kind of put on the employers I think to kind of do some of that cultural competency training um, and employers are not required to do that and when you ask I know Denisha we when we've been doing trainings we kind of ask people in the room like who feels like they've had they need more training who's had training who and, and most of the people in the room who put their hands up saying they've had training in cultural competency or diversity issues are not from didn't come didn't do ABA masters they basically came from social work um, or psychology where there is a requirement um, to have some cultural competency or some understanding of diversity and equity issues so that's kind of a long-winded answer but that's my answer it's like yes we have these little statements but statements are not enough and actually the last training we did Denisha I don't even remember this but most of people in the room didn't even know that statement was in there um, and I'd say about 80 percent if not more of the people in the room didn't know that there was anything in the code about cultural differences or um, diversity issues and then most of the people also did not know that ABAI had a diversity policy right it, it, so. it's in the ethics code no and this one actually i was so shocked like even when I can tell you my reaction because i wasn't expecting it honestly mm -hmm. and it's not you know and i made it clear that it's not like a judgmental shock it's just like no, i did not yeah. realize that you know that that would be people's response i actually like had a follow-up question yeah. like yeah. um but we kind of just stopped there for a moment and just like considered what that is like then like if we don't even know that the statement is there mm-hmm 
then how is this actually going to show up in our work? It's probably not going to really show up in our work, mm-hmm. right? If we don't even know that we're bound by that, we don't, and we don't think that we have to be bound by it, I guess. Um, so I was just really, I was really shocked um, to kind of hear that feedback, but to go, you know, more to or to piggyback off what you were saying, Evelyn, it's like we have these standards that are there, but then we set it and we just kind of walked away from it. We're like patting ourselves on the back. Good job. We did it. We care about this stuff. We have said, we have declared that we care about diversity. Um, And if you look um, close to the statement, it's actually just an anti-discrimination statement. mm -hmm. It's not even really like jam-pack of anything. It's just like, you must not discriminate. Mm -hmm. But what if I don't know that I'm discriminating, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm just going to automatically say I'm a good person. I don't discriminate against anyone. Mm-hmm. So right. one thing I've noticed in talking with people is that people think that like anti-discrimination or not, so not discriminating some, some, against someone is also the same as equity or equality mm-hmm. or, and, and often people don't even know what the term equity means. Can you all, can you all talk about that just a little bit? Like what the difference between not discriminating, but that, or, but then equity would be. So we talked a little bit about that in our last training, essentially, because that is something like just because we are free of this like overt thing, right? Like I'm overtly saying that I don't accept this type of person here. That doesn't mean that you are actually moving towards equity or, um, you know, being exhibiting equitable behaviors. Essentially, what I view equity as is like there is equal access to like the resources, being able to also um, recognize or accept different, you know, types of folks, different viewpoints, different uh, language, um, different types of speaking or whatever, like an actual acceptance of of those types of things and not, and to me, what equity looks like is, um, you know, those different types of people aren't told to come to like the majority standard, right? That's a full, like you can be kind of whoever you are um, at any point in time. And I think that's a very like, lacks way of just like kind of describing it but that's what that looks like to me like everyone you have equal access to the things that are put in front of you if there are any like things that are preventing you from receiving access then you know adequate measures are attempted in order to make sure that you do there is some um there is a way to make you equal um enough to gain access to those things so i think um yeah, so I think it looks like that. The equal access, finding ways to make sure that people actually can um, have that access and then also accepting the people that are coming to the table, regardless of what they look like, speak like, um, identify as, things like that. So. I think I think there's something important in there, Denisha, about with equity, it's acknowledging that people are different, actually, and different people are going to need different things. Yes. So I think that's really, really important, like equal access okay, is fine, but different people are going to need different things in order to access those things. Mm -hmm. So it's acknowledging, it's not just, it's like that, that um, cartoon that you had put in our slides with the the equal opportunity employer one, where the shape cut in the door doesn't let anyone out, anyone but one kind of person through the door. So saying we're going to provide equal access and not discriminate against people does not necessarily mean everyone can access that stuff, because not everybody is the same. And not everyone is coming from the same playing field or level. 
right? So everybody, you need to be able to see and acknowledge and notice differences and be sensitive to differences in order to understand exactly what each type, each person needs in order to have access to that uh, resource or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah, that would be the difference for me. It's like saying, <laughs> saying I'm not going to discriminate and also, not only am I not going to discriminate, but I'm going to notice and acknowledge differences in order to help everybody get a get an equal footing. Um, yeah. Can you give Can you give need. a specific example as to what that would look like? Like, pick something. I mean, thinking about clients. I mean, clients right there. Like, different clients have different resources and different um, needs, um, and are going to have to jump through different kinds of hoops to get services, depending on um, their socioeconomic status they're in funding source um can you know do they have insurance do they have medicaid like what's going on there um are they getting you know a california uh, regional center or whatever they don't pay anymore but before that would have been consideration so where do they live do they have transport um you know what's their ability to get their kids to the center so just thinking about clients as an example i think like students as well like how do you help students from different backgrounds with different um of all kinds of different cultural differences or whatever access at higher education um or access a curriculum or you know we we've been talking a lot about practitioners and accessibility my partner works in accessibility um software design and is constantly every time i bring them with me to some kind of event they're constantly pointing out to me how inaccessible the event is for anybody other than fully able-bodied uh, people who also can afford to be there. So I would say that, like thinking about different needs of people, because everyone has to get their CEs and everyone's supposed to go to these things like conferences, but how do we help everybody get there? Well, it's interesting you said that, like I think about every time everybody starts registering for ABAI and unless you're a student, people are like, I can't afford well, to go every year. There's no way, so I, I just can't mm -hmm. make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, and that too, there was one specific thing. It was a conference. It was a meme or something I read, but it said the next time you're a presenter and you say, no, I don't need a microphone. Think about the one person that might be hearing impaired enough to where they would need that microphone. Like you, just because you don't, aren't comfortable using that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it because somebody else might have trouble hearing you. Yeah. Um, and they don't want to be the one person to stand up and say, no, actually, I, I can't hear you. You know, right. when everybody else as a group says, yeah, we can hear. Um, but it's not enough to say my my uh, presentation is open to everybody. I'm not discriminating. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. So that's the difference there. It's like okay. you can say, like, I'm being fair. Everyone has this. I think about, like, you know, the educational system, for example, um, everyone has access to public schooling right and so that means everyone has access to education and so we start to get into like the meritocracy type of conversations where it's like you can do this and you know lift yourself up by your bootstraps and everyone can be a doctor one day because it's available to everyone but it's like well actually we're going to siphon off the resources and send them to this other school you're going to have to share textbooks then we're going to make your parents who are already being pay underpaid pay for your textbooks if you really want them and so it's just one thing to be like everyone's fair everyone has access to this thing or this conference or this talk that i'm doing but there are people that are you know in the background or in the forefront and you're just you know ignoring them intentionally and they're saying hey we need this and you're just like 
everyone will be fine. You know, we, mm-hmm. we have this thing for, for you also deal with it because this is what fairness looks like. Um, we're not making any concessions because this person over here is doing just fine. Um, and we can't set our standard on what the majority folks are needing because majority, whatever that might be, they're, they're not speaking to the, you really should be speaking to the most uh, impacted or vulnerable people in, in any of the rooms, because if you don't, you're missing individuals. Like, um, it's okay. Like if you are, you know, even when you brought up, um, able-bodied folks and we're constantly making, making sure that we set our rules for conferences around like, okay, so our able-bodied folks need to be able to get from this side of the hotel to that side. And we're going to test it out. The average able-bodied person can get there in five minutes. So we're just going to give our able-bodied folks two more minutes just to make sure that's okay. Who are you leaving out? That should not be how you're setting your standards. You should be setting your standard for the person that's going to need time to get across that room. Um, And then using that um, as your as your level. Right. And that's how I think that you make sure that you're bringing that. I feel like that's what equity looks like. Um, if we're not, if we're not bringing in the voices of the most impacted, um, then we're going to continue to be having these conversations of like, but everything was fair. You know, we just offered it. Um, we said, come to our conference and price the same for everyone. And most of these people can afford to go to your conference that costs you $900 a pop. And then go to this other conference that costs you $600 and then turn around and go to this other conference that costs $300 or whatever. And then we look at each other and say, well, that's, you know, if you want to be a good BCBA, then you have to go to these conferences. That's the only way you're going to be smart if, you know, and, but who, who, who's not able to get there? I think that's my rant for the night. (laughs) I'm going to stop there. Well, Denisha, you're making me think, though, how unbehavior analytic that is, right? Because that would be like me going, good job, me. I put this uh, object labels program in a kid's binder, but I'm never going to look at the data to see what Mm. the kid's learning. And I just don't care because it's in there. So good job, me. Um, You know, I've seen that pan out where I've seen organizations be like, we are an equal opportunity employer. We, We don't, you know, we value diversity. And yet when you look at the makeup of their organization, which is the data, it's right glaringly right there tell, with the, telling you how you're doing, like how your policies are working. It's very obviously telling the world is telling the organization, well, that's great, but it's not working. But they are absolutely non-willing to look at that data. They're like, nope, we are fair. We, we, are, we do not have a problem with promoting only um, white employees. That's just not a thing. And you're like, but look at your organizational structure. Look at the data. Look at who you're hiring. Look at who's getting promoted. There's a problem there, um, right? That's not, we're not even looking at the data and doing the analysis. So it's kind of, I mean, we just wouldn't do that, I hope, <laughs> anywhere else. And the other thing is, Denisha, we talked about, like, it's really weird that behavior analysts are okay about saying, I feel good about this, so we're done. Whenever mm-hmm. they give psychologists so much flack for doing that all the time in their research, right? Just this person says this worked and they feel good about it. They think the treatment was helpful, so good job us. Right. But we wouldn't accept that as behavior analysts. We would right. be like, but we want to know, did their behavior actually change? Right. Is their life different? Are they actually living their life differently? Or are they just saying they feel better? Like we wouldn't be okay with that. So I don't know why we're okay with it in this realm of diversity. 
be like, I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I'm, I put these policies in place. I said, I care about this. Good job, me. I feel good about it. Job done. Done. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so Evelyn, you do a lot of work uh, around acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. Um, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, to like, I guess, just kind of let, tell them what ACT is. Aaron and I have talked about ACT on the show before. Um, but if you could just give like a little background into what it is and then talk a little bit about how we can use ACT and apply it to, um, issues of diversity and equity and justice. Yeah, no pressure. I will try. <laughs> um, I'm like, wow, that's a lot to try and sum up, but I would, I describe ACT um, simply as a behavioral analytic approach to dealing with difficult thoughts and feelings or private versus private events. Um, it's really about teaching you strategies um, that enable you to continue living your life towards your values or doing being able to do hard stuff even in the face of adversity, essentially. It's like helping you contact longer later reinforcers essentially that motivate you to keep going in the face of adversity right to tolerate or to be able to expose be willing to expose yourself to short-term aversive consequences or short-term reverses aversive thoughts aversive feelings whatever um be willing to expose yourself to those things um and move forward towards something that's bigger than that that's more meaningful to you to live the Mm -hmm. life that you want um, I guess that's, is that good enough? <laughs> I don't know. Um, feeling the fear and doing it anyway is another way of talking about ACT, I think. Um, but it really, that's what it is for me. For me, with the kids that I work with, um, we talk about it as making your life bigger, like being able to make your life so big that they're really, sh- I was going to swear there, <laughs> they're, they're really crappy stuff doesn't matter, you know, that it doesn't, that it's you know, creating a big, another way they've described it is creating a big space around, um, a big, big space around the, the pain so that it doesn't matter anymore. Um, and teaching new skills, like teaching new discrimination skills would be part of that. So learning how to discriminate when you're under, prim- your behavior is primarily under verbal control versus direct contingencies. So that's the mindfulness piece. So noticing um, am I in my head or am I in the world? And am I, what is, what is get, um, driving my behavior right now? Am I, am I under more under aversive control and avoiding and trying to feel better? Or am I moving towards things that care about me, even though this is really hard? So am I willing to, and then thinking about willingness, like, am I willing to have this crappy stuff if it means that I'm moving towards things that matter to me? Um, what even matters to me is part of it too. Like, who do I want to be? Like, what kind of a person do I want to be in the world? What kind of, um, what way do I want to live my life? What, what would I want people to say about me at the end of my life as, in terms of the person that I am? Um, like ways, and by that I'm talking about ways of behaving, obviously. Like, uh, what are the behaviors that I want to engage in? Um, what am I all about? So all of those things or act for me, but I think ultimately it's about courage to me. Act is just, is about finding courage um, within adversity or within struggle and 
self-compassion as well is very much part of the act model so being able to be kind to yourself when things are hard or you make mistakes um, approaching all things that are hard in a more productive adaptive way than just avoiding um, or doing things that are ultimately harmful to you in the long run that was a I lot. Love how, <laughs> I love how behavior analytic you just made that though, because I think oh, that's yeah. some people get really turned off by ACT and and uh, especially some behavior analysts and and the way that especially where you say what your behavior is under the control of is it under the control of um, verbal behavior, verbal private events, or is it under the control of direct contingencies? Like that really mm -hmm. spoke to me. Um, because it is, and it's hard. And, and if you don't have, whether you call it mindfulness, whether you call it present moment awareness, mm -hmm. what a self-awareness, whatever it is, it's, it's being able to acknowledge and be aware of your own behavior and observe your own behavior in the same way that you mm -hmm. would do that to a client or, or you know, um, in, in a mm -hmm. clinical setting or something like that. And, mm -hmm. um, we don't do that mm -hmm. enough if at mm -hmm. all, sometimes, you know, yeah, there's a few things that I'm thinking there, Aaron, that are super important about what you just said. And one is you have to be, you can, the point of change is only in this moment, right? You can't change behavior in the future. You can't change behavior in the past. There is no future and past. There's only like right now. So when you're under verbal control, a lot of the time we're thinking about the future, we're thinking about the past, right? We're worrying about the future and ruminating on the past. And we cannot, that is not a space where vari variation or flexibility or a, a change of behavior change can happen, right? It just can't, it, ha it can only happen in this moment. That's the only point of change that we have. Same with like a kid that you're working with, right? You, the only point of change you have is right now when you're working with the kid. You can't change the kid's behavior like tomorrow, you're not in the future and you can't change what happened yesterday. You're not in the past. You can only work with what's in front of you. Um, you can make plans all you want, but really like what we're doing in the trenches is with those kids in the moment, right? It, you know, even the, even the behavior plan, you make that in advance, but ultimately it's what the RBT does with that plan and they're working with the kid, right? In the moment as to whether it's gonna be successful or not and you're gonna see behavior change. So that's kind of what I see ACT is ACT is about the, the getting you in the moment, in the present, and that's where you have your point to change. That's where the opportunity is to contact reinforcements. That's where the opportunity is to do something adaptive. Um, so that's part of what I was thinking about. And then I was thinking about verbal control and all the problems with inflexibility that come with language um, or verbal rules and things like that. And so, um, the direct contingencies is where you need to be um, or usually a lot more there's a lot more opportunities for variability to happen um, it, within the direct environment than when you're stuck following rigid rules or stuck in your head or stuck in your head as we call it with the kids or in your advisor zone your advisor space yeah those rigid rules um i one that really i figured out um that i was fused with for the longest time was this idea that uh, for, like a source of employment had to be this nine to five, 40 hour week job kind of thing. And, and it had to be full time with benefits. And it was like, I was raised to think that, and I never functioned well in that space ever to the point where I thought something was wrong with me. Um, and now I have like this work schedule where I'm, it's very flexible. There's only certain rigid time frames that, that I can align that with. And like, uh, I wake up, four in the morning sometimes and work for six hours straight. And I don't work the rest of the day until I teach from like eight to 10 at night. Um, but that 
that is workable for me. But when I'm fused to that, that rule that mm -hmm. my job has to be this, it doesn't like, it doesn't work well. And that's that verbal control of my, of that, mm -hmm. of my behavior. And mm -hmm. it's not workable mm -hmm. and it has all these issues. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, realizing, and it's still hard. I still catch myself sometimes it's like five o'clock, I should not be working anymore. And it's like, wait, I didn't work <laughs> for like the past six hours. I can do yeah. this now, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, again, not a, you know, a big example, but something mm -hmm. that maybe some people can relate to. Well, we, we could talk, we could relate this very much into something Denise and I talked about in our mm -hmm. trainings quite a bit. And that is where we get tripped up mm -hmm. in terms of verbal rules or self rules or self stories. We talk about that in our training in term with respect to diversity and, and equity issues. So a lot of us have rules about ourselves in terms of like, I want, I'm a good person. I'm an ally, therefore I can't be racist, right? So you put it in a frame with like, a good person is not racist. Mm -hmm. I'm a good person, therefore I cannot be racist. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is what happens then when somebody gives you feedback and says to you that you've done something that's offensive or racist in some way, you're going to cling to that rule. Most likely you're not going to respond well. You're going to get defensive. You're going to do what you can um, because there's no flexibility there. It's like a good person is not racist. I'm a good person. You're telling me I'm racist. I, I, that is not okay. That's not, that can't be true. Um, or you're going to argue with that. It's going to be, it's very, it's a, it's problematic. Um, Whereas if you have a more flexible rule of like, I'm a good person and an ally, and sometimes I may do things that are racist, um, that is possible. I'm also privileged and therefore I can't know all the ways that I'm probably hurting other people at times or contributing to um, or being complicit to the systemic oppressions and things like that. Like when you have those more and flexible rules, when somebody then gives me feedback, if I have a more flexible rule, I'm going to be much more open and able to incorporate that, right? I'm not going to be, I'm likely to be less offensive and more able to kind of hear it, I think. Yeah. Can I um, say something about that too? Yeah. So I think part, you know, part of that is what we know as like, are what we were taught about, like who racist are mm -hmm. or like who mm -hmm. are sexist or who are mm -hmm. these people? Like we're taught this in a sense of like, these were the people that were doing these overt horrible things that. to individuals yeah. and I'm going to use like racism as the thing mm -hmm. right so we learned about the racist as being skinheads KKK they're you know they're people burning crosses in mm -hmm. people's yards mm -hmm. um, or hanging people up from trees or dragging people and that's a very dark you know way but that's the truth you know so a lot of times we try not to talk about the past because it it's um, hurtful but that's how we looked at it as these were the races, they were the KKKs. But one thing we failed to remember is that every point of history, there was always people that was standing around those trees watching. Mm -hmm. They weren't the people that were actually stringing others up. And so I see that as the, that's the complicity there. Right. And so you might not have people being um, hanged in like actually being hanged in front of you, but, but, our behaviors are actually imitating those that were standing around the tree watching and saying nothing and doing nothing and essentially reinforcing those few who engaged in that behavior. And um, 
But because we don't know racism to look like that, because we don't consider the people that are sitting around being complicit, then I therefore am not that person. Mm -hmm. Um, I therefore am not this sexist Mm -hmm. because I'm not the person that's engaging in domestic violence or um, doing these things against women or whatever. Um, But there's going to always be people that are just sitting there and that are um, engaging in some of those behaviors that are a little bit less um, physically, um, you know, aversive or whatever. And so I, I think we have to consider that part too, that our complicity also um, speaks to some of these systems that are in place right now. Um, And then just, you know, what you were talking about, Evelyn, about being able to be flexible in that, that you are going to get feedback. And sometimes you are going to be doing this, the behaviors that other people are calling this thing. Like as a heterosexual person, there are going to be times where I might say, do, think, feel something that is, you know, the person that's probably going to be likely or similar to someone who's all that's fully against it. And so being flexible enough to know that I'm not going to be perfect in this journey, that there are going to be some overlaps or some similarities and not allowing ourselves to shut down over language. Like I know um, in our field, um, I, I remember uh, one of my first jobs using the term maladaptive behaviors and that's a terminology, right? And thinking about like how that functions for a parent that you're saying, oh, your child engages in maladaptive behavior. And they're like, wait, what? What are you calling my child? And and there's a shutdown. And so it's like telling a person that what you just did was racist. And they're like, uh, what? I'm going to yeah. shut this down. But what the parent is communicating to you is that, that didn't, something that you said or something that you did didn't sit right with me. And so we need to be able to kind of look at our own um, behaviors and just know that some of the things that we say don't function the same for other people. But when other people do use certain time terminology towards us, um, then there is something that they're also communicating to us. And I think that racism, sexism, whatever the ism is, that's just very common knowledge or common terminology that we have. And we use it um, to say, hey, essentially what you did was not right. Um, And so shutting down at the instance of just hearing it um, probably is not going to move you towards whatever you say that you care about. If a person came to you and said, you know, um, you enacted a microaggression against me and that felt, you know, a certain way to me. And you're just like, nope, nope, that's not true because I look at everyone the same. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't see you for your social identities or whatever, then you're probably dismissing them and you're definitely not going to do better. You're not going to be able to further relationship, further the relationship that you have with them, but then you're also not going to be able to move closer to what you have also stated that you said you care about. Um, and so that's my second rant. So Denisha, <laughs> Denisha, this reminds me what you're talking about here is brings me back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, which was that um, refusal to actually pay attention to the data, right? I am saying this, this is my rule. I am not insensitive to what the world is telling me about that rule. So mm-hmm. if I have, that's the problem with verbal control. It can make you really inflexible and totally like that. We talk about the kids. It makes you totally not pay attention to the feedback the world is giving you about the way you're living your life and who you're being and what your behavior is saying. So if you're rigidly clinging to the fact that we are an equal opportunity employer or you're clinging to the rule of I am not racist, I don't want to be even the rule like I don't want to be a racist. 
right? That's not, that's wrong. That's not okay. So I am the good person. I don't want to be that. Um, you're going to become really insensitive to feedback from the world about anything that's again, that's going against that, right? So the same as the organization that is like angry when I'm trying to point out, okay, you ha- I hear you, you have this policy, you say this, this is your value, and here is the data. And then they get mad about it and say, that's absolutely not true. So it's, I don't know, that's where my mind went. It came back to that inflexibility. And the beauty of ACT is ACT, the whole point of ACT is to try and again, loosen that verbal control and help you be more sensitive to feedback from the world, to get in that discovery space, as we call it with the kids, to be able to actually track, right? So instead of clinging to rules for rules sake, you actually start tracking whether the rules are helpful to you, when they're helpful to you, whether they're actually accurate, whether your behavior is actually in line and the outcomes that you're experiencing are actually in line with the rule. And then you get to be flexible and decide, okay, this rule is actually not that helpful to me. Or maybe I can add to the rule. Maybe I can add stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm willing to get and be willing to get in that uncomfortable space because learning is hard. <laughs> learning is really hard. Realizing that some of the things you thought about yourself might not be completely accurate um, or that there's more to it is hard. Having courage to also, you know, Deisha, we talked about belonging and human beings want to belong. They're social animals. It's really hard to speak up and challenge systems and, you know, be risk, risk being rejected from your group, um, potentially. Human, I mean, we understand that as human beings, like that, you know, a lone person is a dead person whenever you're in a caveman days in the, out there. So it's, it can be really difficult for people to, yeah, step outside that zone of complicity. And it's hard for people to give up stuff, right? Privilege is, you know, we use the word privilege to describe privilege because it's privilege. Uh-huh. It gives you stuff that you don't have to work for. And in order for us to be equitable or for other people to have seats at the table, some people have to give up their seats. Like that's the reality there, you know, to lift other people up you have to be willing to make space for them and that means being willing to give up some privileges and that's really hard for everybody it's hard Um, and it doesn't get easier Denisha we were talking as well about how I feel like the more you do this work and the more you use act and you start opening your eyes to the world it actually becomes even harder (laughs) Um, it doesn't get any easier like doing hard stuff doesn't get any easier Um, I find it, I'm very grateful and very grateful for ACT and it does, and it's challenging, like um, noticing, you know, it's like the more you notice things, the more you start noticing the problems, (laughs) I guess. So I think it was two, two classes ago, I was writing a paper about um, privilege and oppression and, and it was supposed to be the solution focused paper as to how to, to culturally change and shift some of these things. And I, I just kind of kept like running up against the dead end because the issue that I continued to come in, up with was um, what you just said was if I have access to all these reinforcers and control of all these reinforcers, and if I know reinforcement increases the likelihood of future behavior, why would I choose to stop that? You know? And so it, kept coming back to values, but it also kept coming back to 
uh, this question of, do you need some sort of, so for me, it's like personal connection. It's, it's caring about people. It's, um, it's seeing the product of harm or, or good, you know, and, and, and does that have to happen in order, uh, in order for you to, in, to relinquish control of some of those reinforcers. And, um, I've come into contact a lot with, with people where it doesn't matter. It doesn't change. Um, and I haven't quite figured that out yet. Uh, like my own family, you know, things like it, it doesn't matter. Um, and I don't know if it's like these rigid rules of this is how humans are supposed to be. And there's no flexibility with that whatsoever. Um, but I've also experienced the, the exact opposite of that. But I mean, what, what's your all's take on that? Like just where does personal connection kind of lie in all of this? I guess Aaron, Aaron, I'm ask, I want some clarification. Are you talking about sure. connecting with others in service of getting others to change or getting them to be more sensitive about these issues or um, what do you, what as the con, what do you? So saying that if, I'm trying to think of maybe a scenario. Um, like if I'm thinking of, I don't know, Denise, do you have a scenario? I'm trying to, it's, see, it's late. This is one of those things. I know. I, I totally agree. <laughs> um, let me, oh. I'm going to, I guess. Are you talking about community? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to paraphrase and see if I could, because I feel like I, I followed, but I don't know. Yeah. So um, essentially what I felt like I was hearing is, um, does an individual already have to have some type of um, connection to caring for others in order to, I guess, want to um, do kind of the work that's related to equity and justice. Do they need to contact those contingencies almost directly by somebody like in their family or a personal friend or something like that? Does there have to be someone who's directly affected by these issues? Do they need to directly observe and contact that in some way and also care like some kind of altruism or something. Um, I don't think so because I think that you can, I mean, there's always going to be the small minority of people I think you can't reach, but I think that you can connect with a human being. It's like, I do this every day with parents that I work with, right? When I'm trying to figure out, how can I get this parent to do this really hard thing and take on board this recommendation that I'm making that they, and, and how do I deliver this, tell them this stuff that they don't want to hear, right? How do I get them to be open to that? Um, and for me, the act piece is very helpful there because I have learned to, it's like really listening and really trying to figure out what does this person really care about? What matters to them? And underneath, I don't really believe that people generally have um, antisocial values um, or destructive values. I, don't, I think you just have to keep digging because underneath there is something about, usually about belonging, um, connecting, being good enough, things like important things about being a human. And the way in is to find that and relate that it's a relating process and then frame being using language as a behavior analyst using language really functionally like what are the words that are most meaningful to this person 
that I can say that can bring what's important to them into the room, into this conversation? And how do I get this to function in the way that I want it to? Not how I think it should function or what words I like or what words I want to say, um, because that's about me. That's not about the other person and what I need them to do. Um, so it's a process of, that's the process for me. Sometimes you're not the person. Um, Right. Especially if it's like there's a personal relationship there. Maybe you're not the person. I don't know. Sometimes I can't move everybody, but I do. I think ACT helps me also to not to be able to step back from my own crap. So, you know, if I'm in a situation with somebody um, like a parent who's, you know, difficult or something and I'm trying to get them to hear what I need them to hear. I have to be able to notice all my own stuff showing up because that person's going to be aversive to me, right? They're an aversive stimulus. I'm going to have a bunch of responses to that physiologically and, you know, private events about how I don't want to have this conversation. This person's really difficult. I totally disagree. I don't, we're not on the same page. I don't, maybe I don't agree with their value, you know, what their, their political views or whatever it is. I have to be able to um, notice that and notice that I'm, notice if I want to respond to that and step back from it so I can think about okay I feel this way I'm having all these thoughts but what is it I need to actually do right now that is moving me in a direction that is useful not what I want to do or what I feel like I want to do but like what is what is the thing that I need to say here um and I'm not saying it's easy like especially and, and you learn, right? So that's the tracking part too. Like sometimes I don't get it right. And sometimes you can't bring everyone with you. Um, but again, just because somebody doesn't necessarily, Adisha and I talked, Denisha and I talked about this too, just because your audience or the person you're talking to doesn't respond in a wonderful way in that moment, the, you know, the la la dreamland way of responding to you like i totally get it i have changed i, I hear you i'm going to go out and do this stuff does not mean that you're not having an impact it does not mean that your words or behavior are not functioning in a way that matters you don't know you have to keep observing um does that make sense like you just you know we, we do this work with kids sometimes we they have all kinds of responses to the things that we do you know they might have a meltdown whenever we do something and that and we understand that that's okay that's part of the process so i'm just saying that just because somebody doesn't necessarily have like a hug come and hug you or whatever because you're telling them this feedback is not necessarily mean that what you're doing is not working or isn't worth yeah. something or isn't um an action for you that's in the right direction. We talked about it, um, you know, in terms of like those little nuggets, like anytime that you have a conversation with someone, it you might, like Evelyn said, you might not have the full aha moment, like I've been wrong, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that little nugget is like, mm -hmm. it's, it's there, like mm -hmm. that's gonna be there um, and they're gonna take that with them now that you've put that into mm -hmm. their, um, their um mind 
But I kind of look at it like, you know, if we're teaching someone a new skill, for example, and let's say you're just doing the standard DTT, like they didn't have anything. And what we're trying to do is prompt these responses to get them to independence. Over time, they're going to get to that independent response. It's not, it might not be that first time that you introduce it though. And depending on the learner, it might take more trials. It might take more sessions, more months to try to get this one particular skill. And, um, um, that's kind of how I see it. Like I grew up with, uh, I have a military background, like both of my parents are in the military. And so the military is, is its own culture. And if you know about the military, it's very conservative. And so my family, I grew up with some of those same conservative values. And I remember being a teenager, like something doesn't seem right. And so I was that teenager that, you know, have been dropping the small things in the bucket um, over time. And it's just been really crazy just over the years to see the changes in my parents. Um, and that didn't happen overnight. It took years and years and we still don't agree about everything, but that drop in the bucket keeps happening. And I'm just going to keep putting those little nuggets in there. And I, and I, you know, I take that um, type of approach with people, obviously, that I really care about. I think um, I've talked about it on the show before. For me, having those conversations with folks that I don't have a personal connection to, uh, it, that's harder. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to shut down. I'm probably going to drop one little nugget and leave or decide that I'm not dropping anything and leave that to other people. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless, um, I guess for the listeners, I would just say, you know, for the folks that are around you, it might not work the first time. It might not work the 20th time, um, but just keep doing that. Like keep, keep speaking up, um, keep talking. Um, and hopefully eventually, you know, there will be some uh, changes. Like there'll be more information if nothing else put into their network about these types of folks or this type of, you know, uh, topic. And they'll have that to, to go off of because of something that you said. And I think that's the powerful part of being um, co-conspirators like that are moving towards justice. Like you have so much power in just speaking up, even if it feels like, man, that was not even worth it. Or man, I didn't get the response that I was looking for. Um, you don't have a way in the future. Like, like Evelyn has said, you don't know what's going to happen, but I would just err on the side of it's going to work out, you know, that, that they're going to gain something from this converse, from the conversations that you've had with them. And so keep, keep at it and keep talking. Um, yeah. And it's hard to like, Set. there is no one way to do this work that's no. the other thing like just every situation every person it might be a bit different it's very individualized and I agree with you Denisha that it's not always your job <laughs> you don't always have to say something or have to pick a battle with somebody like that's maybe that's not a helpful strategy we don't always get into it with kids either um, sometimes walking away is the best thing you can do um, so I'm, I try to be really mindful of, about when I'm saying something, I try, I say try because I am a pretty um, passionate person. And so I generally, when I, and when I feel like there's injustice there, I do tend to say something um, for better or worse, but I, I try to be mindful of picking my battles carefully and not wasting my time it's like being protective of yourself like I think that's a huge right. part of being an activist or being in the world trying to do this social justice stuff is you have to 
if you're going to survive, you really need to get good at taking care of yourself and protecting yourself and being really strong with boundaries. Um, and you are not useful to other people if you are burned out and broken and harmed in the process. Um, so I try to really practice a lot of self-compassion as well, because sometimes you get reactions from people that are really hard. And you, you both have talked about situations on the program already, and I can think of many that really hurt. I think for me, I don't know, but I'm really curious. I've wanted to ask you to this question, but for me, when I get, because Megan Miller last week was talking about harsh feedback and I have definitely been there. Um, and I think when I get hot, difficult responses from the people that I'm actually trying to do something for, <laughs> that is the hardest for me. So um, I'm curious about your, your experiences. Um, like, I guess what I'm saying, like an example I'm thinking of is like when somebody's giving you feedback from, the, from your minority group or from the group that you're speaking out for, you get feedback that they don't like the way that you're doing the work. Like that for, is an example, right? So mm -hmm. when I, if I'm speaking out um, against misogyny or some kind of sexism in the field or gender issues in the field, and I get feedback from um, a minority or fem or women or something that they do not like the way that I go about, have gone about that or said something, that hurt that has been so difficult for me because I'm like my people my people are oh, yeah. are mad at me um mm -hmm. I don't know that no it's like if there's somebody that should be there to support you regardless if they don't like the way you went about it or not it's like you would you would think that it would be those people who um experience the same struggle and the same challenges you know, but it's really know. complicated because there's no no every people do not agree necessarily on how we go about this work, and that's what I've learned a lot a lot about. Um, and uh, internalized oppression is a thing too. Yeah, so, I was gonna say. <laughs> I think this is where like discernment comes in because we do need to recognize that we've all been taught the same things, and so if I've been taught these things about my group, um, if I've been taught these things about women. Just because I am a woman does not mean that I am going to disagree with those things that I've been taught even about myself. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even if these things are detrimental to who I am as a person, I might not see that because I have all these things um, in my head floating around, whether they're related to the rules that I've been taught about um, who I am. And so this is where I use discernment, even when, like if there's feedback given. And when you speak up... <laughs> I want our listeners to know right now that Evelyn has a cute little cat that just came across the screen. Um, <laughs> it's so cute. Um, but no, even when you speak up and there are people that are from your group that might disagree with the way that you're saying it, you have to key into what, what they are saying to you. So mm -hmm. like for me, um, if I hear something and someone's like, well, it's not that you're saying it, it's just how you're saying it. 
Like you're supposed to put it in this way and, and think about what's that related to? Like, are these related to the rules that we've been taught about ourselves? And if it is, that's where you use discernment. Like, you know, thank you very much. And just know that you have a different purpose with putting out this information. Um, and I talked about it, you know, um, on probably one of the first shows with some of the fears that I had because internalized oppression is real. So they're going to people be people that look at me from my own communities um, and say, you're not doing it right. Or you're doing it, you know, you're embarrassing us or whatever. And that's going to be related to what folks have been taught about themselves. And so I just recognize that um, what are my values? Are my values actually related to equity and justice? If that is that, then I'm going to have to be able to continue walking forward, knowing that not everyone is going to agree with the way that I'm saying something or the way that I'm doing these things. Because at the end of the day, this is about the you and them, the community, folks being actually able to... um, you know, have those equal rights that we say that we care about. And that's going to cause for me to say, I hear you. Thank you. And I'm going to keep walking forward. Now, if you've done the discernment work and you said, hmm, that's not really, I'm not hearing the rigid rule following there. Like I'm not hearing someone saying that, okay, as a woman, you're not supposed to be so loud and so bold about these things. You need to go ask somebody for permission to change these like larger things. Um, But I'm hearing some, some feedback that actually is like, you know, all right that makes sense. I can, I can be flexible and I can be adaptable, but it, I think it is really hard. Cause you like, you're like, but I'm doing this for us and I'm doing this for yeah. everyone. And you don't see that yet, but sometimes you just have to know that not everyone is going to get on board and, and not everyone, even, if, even like I said, if they're the ones that are going to be suffering mm-hmm. through your silence, like, you know, that just, you have to keep moving. I think about other folks in points of history um, and Harriet Tubman is coming to mind for me when she, you know, moved throughout trying to free enslaved people. There are people that said, no, we're going to stay behind. Mm-hmm. No, we can't go with you. Um, and so you're going to always have those type mm-hmm. of people that are not going to be willing to go with you. But Harriet moved forward because she, there was something that she believed in, which was freedom mm-hmm. um, for people. And so, yeah. I mean, I'm relatively new to all this stuff. And I, I don't think I've I've necessarily gotten pushback about anything I've, I've done specifically. Um, but what I have contacted are people of, uh, within my quote unquote group, maybe like revolving around gender or something like that, that have made choices to, um, to not live like the authentic, like in the authentic way, like very out way Mm -hmm. that I have too. And, and um, to kind of sit in that space and to hear, like, I could see how it could easily be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, this is what we're fighting for. This is what we're, if you're not, if you're not going to come out you're not going to do the hard things, then, um, then whatever thoughts might come to people's mind, but it's like to be able to sit and to listen and to hear them explain okay, this is, this is why it might not be safe for them. It might not, you know, there are all these things that are kind of showing up for me that, that I've experienced, but I know there are people who, who aren't willing to, to have that, I guess you go back to like flexibility in terms of like what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And, um, and it's hard for people to, to hear that. 
Yeah, I think you're speaking to, I'm going back to privilege now because I'm sitting Mm -hmm. listening to you and thinking about the kids on my unit and we get a fair proportion of um, trans kids and non-binary kids on our unit. And, you know, one of my kids was in a situation with a staff member a while ago where the staff member, I guess, was inviting them to just be out um, and the, my young person was just not, was really uncomfortable with being put on the spot. I think it was a misunderstanding, but at some point they were really upset by that and we, we worked through it. And I'm listening to you and thinking, you know, I agree, that's not safe. It's not, it's not uh, necessarily their job to do that right there and then. It's not their fight to fight in that moment. But, you know, I felt, but my privilege <laughs> and my position allows me to do that, to model for those kids and to um, step outside my internalized stuff. So I struggled for a long time. I didn't even notice at first, but then I struggled for a long time with, for example, having a picture of my partner in my office and having my rainbow stuff and my trans stuff and all my Black Lives Matter and whatever else in my office. Um, and didn't do it and I didn't out myself at work I never talked about my partner and working with these kids I'm just like I got I cannot do this anymore I need to do this for them I'm in a privileged position of an adult being an adult where I can model for them it might make other people uncomfortable but what am I hiding from I'm really hiding from my own shame my own fears and I can't I need these young people to at least see that they can choose that there is other people who are, you know, if they're not able to be in a position of power privilege or be able to, you know, be out to their family or on the unit or whatever it is, they can see me doing it. I don't know if that's making any sense, but I was just like, I can't, I need to do this for them. Like that was just so important to me. Um, No, it makes a lot of sense. And too, I think, like the last show that we had Megan Kirby on, she was talking about uh, behavior analysts being political and should we be political or not? And so you're not only being a model for like your clients and uh, the kids that you're working with, but also for other behavior analysts in terms of like doing social justice work too. Um, and that's a privilege that, that all three of us, you know, have is to be in a position where we can do that, where we're not at risk of losing our job if we decide to speak up or something like that, where it's actually, um, at least my my job encourages me to do stuff mm-hmm. like this. Um, so, but yeah, I think privileges uh, that definitely comes to mind when you say that for sure. So, so using your using your privilege, that's what I mean. Like using mm-hmm. your privilege to help move the move the field forward, or move the world forward, or move like you know just move my unit forward um, and create a safer space for the kids and a more diverse space and more of the space that I want to be it, you know? Um, yeah. Can we talk more like, um, so I really do feel like there's obviously there, there's power in the folks who, um, are from the specific communities, um, themselves, but then there's also power in those who hold privilege and then decide to use their privilege in order to make the space better for them, for other people. Because if you already are from a marginalized group, whatever that group might be, you already are 
you know, showing up in the world with a lot more um, labor put upon you than you should have to. And to have, you know, privilege and then be able to use that privilege, speak up um, and, and notice that when you're speaking up that you're not speaking for, right? Like you'll never be able to speak for these people or for this group, but I am speaking up in solidarity with, and then hopefully with you speaking up that, one, you are making that environment safer for these folks. But then when you do speak up that hopefully you're also fueling other individuals who, who might've felt like they wanted to speak up for themselves, but just couldn't, but to even just know that there's somebody else in this environment that might get it. Um, and because they've already helped to kind of put this out now, I'm, I'm comfortable with saying this or now they've done this and I don't have to, like, I don't have to exhibit or, um, emit more labor, um, because this person who holds the privilege that has probably a lesser likelihood of, um, having ramifications for speaking up, you know, they've done that for me. And so realizing that, that that's there, um, and this is happening in our workplaces every single day. Like, you know, I I think a lot of times where we start to think like, you know, behavior analysts, we don't really, we have all the answers, right? Because we know how behavior works, but Mm -hmm. all the stuff that's happening outside of behavior um, analysis is, is happening inside. And so if you're at your organization, I can guarantee you there are individuals from marginalized groups that are feeling like their voices are not being heard, that they're not given a fair shake, that they can't be who they are at work, that they can't speak how they want to speak at work without fear of being, you know, typecasted or whatever. And so just kind of like noticing other people around you um, and then using that to, to just I'm losing a word, but just like speaking up and just know and saying that, hey, we're we might just be um, missing the mark here or, you know, and and there's something more that we can do to allow this um, agency, this organization to feel a little bit more comfortable because it really doesn't matter if you say, you know, we have diversity and I can look at, you know, the folks that are um, on our website and say, oh, look, there are these few people of color. Oh, look, there's this non-binary person here. Oh, look, there is this, um, these women over here. And then they show up to work and they're having to kind of do the same thing, you know, all the, all the good spots at the job are going to all the, the men in the room, they're being paid more. Um, the, um, minorities are not being able to speak up for the microaggressions that they experience. It's like, who cares that you're showing us that you have this diverse workplace? It's not really diverse if you actually take it apart. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the powerful part about privilege. Is that my third rant? Yes, it is. <laughs> all right, we've all been ranting. We're gonna. I'm gonna start tallying. <laughs> you should tally them all. <laughs> no, I equate that to like slapping a safe space sticker on like the door, and then you walk in, and nothing has changed yeah. on the inside. You know, yeah. right? Um, so, and I see that happen quite often. So. I, I I'm thinking about what you just said, Denisha, and also what I want to keep saying is that, and you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Like if you have privilege, then doing anything that's not maintaining the status quo of that privilege is going to be uncomfortable. Like, mm-hmm. and that's okay. That's the price of admission to, to moving towards values, right? Values. It means that it matters to you. If it's uncomfortable, it means it matters. There's something at stake that's important. Um, and I've 
I keep coming back to that. Like that means speaking up is like not easy. Like that's hard when you're not used to it, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. So I don't know. I keep thinking that like just if you're uncomfortable, you're doing it right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, If it feels difficult, you're probably doing it right. If it's uncomfortable, you're probably doing it right. That doesn't, I'm not talking about being unsafe. I'm just talking about being willing to feel uncomfortable and to be, to put yourself out there. Like, and that's something that people with privilege are not used to do. Hence they're privileged. Um, I think that's important to acknowledge too. Like I know for me, like I remember I was, I'm like when I've been struggling with some of the uncomfortableness of doing some of the talks I've been doing or, um, and then I'm moaning about it and I moan to Denisha and then I'm thinking like, oh, but like, this is probably, this is like, what am I, what do I have to complain about? Like, this is, I have to be willing to be uncomfortable. This isn't even that uncomfortable compared to the, the uncomfortableness that minorities have been putting up with the racism, um, the history that we have here. Like it's, it's, it's okay. I don't know. I'm ranting now, but I'm not making any sense, but I've been thinking about that a lot. Like my willingness to be uncomfortable and recognizing that it's got, it's like tiny compared to what the people that I'm trying to speak, speak up for, (laughs) um, have been experiencing. Um, Mm -hmm. That made total sense. Okay, good. It did. <laughs> um, so, Evelyn, you do something during your talks, um, and it's a eulogy type of exercise. Can you talk to us about that? I know, Erin, you were at the same workshop that I was the first time that I saw you do this, Evelyn. Um, we eulogized our field. So can you walk our listeners through what that exercise is and like kind of your rationale for creating it? Um, so I didn't, I don't know if I create, it's a version of an act of a act exercise, um, essentially where you're reflecting on your life at your funeral. But really what it is, is this values based exercise. Um, and what I'm trying to do is once we talk about as a group about like where privilege and oppression are showing up in our work, in our field and the problems in our field um, and where we're kind of headed in terms of, you know, service delivery, clinical practice, students, education, um, even diversity or lack thereof of thought in our field and privilege there. Um it's kind of set, setting the scene for where we are now and then asking people, we kind of get people into groups and ask them to think about like, if we continue as we are as a field, right? If we just don't change anything, if we just don't listen to the rest of the world and assume that behavior analysis doesn't need to care about anything to do with these topics, what would our eulogy be? What are people going to say about behavior analysis or ABA? If we're, if we're at the funeral of ABA, come up with a eulogy if we continue as we are. And then the second part is to, well, what might the eulogy be if we don't continue as we are and we actually start to change things in our field um, and move towards the values that people have identified in terms of diversity or the things they say they care about in terms of diversity and equity? What might the eulogy be? Um, and we have people do it in groups and most of the time people actually are quite humorous. <laughs> so, you know, we have ones that are like, here lies ABA 
oh well, <laughs> or womp womp, or uh, they tried, you know, something like funny like that. Um, I can't think they're they're funnier than me usually. Um, and then other ones that are, once we change to the like, what would it be like if we were able to realize Skinner's dream for our field, right? A world much better than the one we have right now, where people are thriving um, across communities and we're living by our values um, and we're servicing all kinds of different communities and our science is like is relevant and thriving. What would that be like? And the eulogies are kind of inspiring and very different. Um, so that's, is that helpful? That's kind of the gist of it. Just kind of the realization if we continue as we are, what would that look like? Um, and what would people be, what would people say about our field if we continue as we are, are we even going to be around? And then what would people say about our field if we realized some of these values and kept um, changing our field for the better and Skinner's dream was a reality. I taught an ethics class this past term and we were going through the code and they, it got to, um, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was um, to essentially protect the reputation of behavior analysis. And I said, I just want to pause for a second. I said, when you all talk to people outside of the field, what is the reputation from their perspective of behavior analysis? And it was like right on point with what I was thinking mm -hmm. that they were going to see, like people hate us, mm -hmm. you know, like we don't listen to other people. We think we know mm -hmm. it all. We, we, um, all these misconceptions and everything and their misconceptions for a reason, because mm -hmm. that's sometimes what's being done and that's what they've experienced. Um, but, um, but I think about that when I think about like, pause, don't change anything else. Like if this was our baseline and we jumped to, mm -hmm. you know, the end, uh, what would we say? And, mm -hmm. and I think that, that it, what you get in those workshops is right on point. Um, you know, humorous or not, but, uh, and it's kind of scary to think about that because we have something amazing. Mm -hmm. We do. I think Megan made a really good point last week about variability. And if we don't have variability, I think it was her, if we don't have variability, what is there to select? What's going to be retained? Like we're going to be extinct. We're not going to be relevant. Um, we have to encourage diversity and variability um, in order for us to evolve, right? That's how evolution works. That's how human right. beings have evolved. Um, the species we need we need to have um, variation and selection happening um, and even in the social justice I do think that that also speaks to their need being space for different ways of doing things right there isn't not like when I'm struggling with am I doing the right thing reminding my I mean yes doing that check like doing this process that you just talked about Demisha of making of tracking like taking, looking at the world and the feedback you're getting and checking it against your rules and whatnot, and also making space for variability and being like, there, it's okay for me to do this a different way from someone else. There are different ways of doing this and different ways and variation is a good thing. Absolutely. I like that. Um, and so I think, I think that's one of the things too is in Evelyn, we've had that conversation about the variability is there going to always be many different ways to address these topics. Um, you know, if, 
you're reading books by different authors. They're talking about the same thing and talking about it just a little bit differently from one another, but their end goals are like all the same, Mm -hmm. like for the ones Mm -hmm. that are like deeply ingrained in the work, but there's some variability within and, you know, between their ideology. Um, But at the end of the day, they're still showing up, right. To make Mm -hmm. changes. And so recognizing that, and then just looking, you know, looking to past leaders, I, I, I feel like that's, what kind of keeps me a little bit grounded in that variability is just knowing that all the leaders had different ways mm-hmm. of saying and doing things. And yes, at different points of times, you know, different leaders were looked at as being okay or safe. And then mm-hmm. others were looked at as being like, you know, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but they all had the same goals in mind and just noticing, knowing that that could happen for you as well. Um, and, and when you are, I feel like when and when we're able to recognize that, then we are able to be compassionate too. When we're seeing other people show up um, in the social justice world and they speak a different way or they do things differently, and just knowing that you really don't have to really you don't have to have that comparison there to like, oh well, if I don't do it their same way, then I'm not doing it quote unquote mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We don't have time. We don't have time to for all of us to get on the same page about this before we mm-hmm. do anything. And last week you were talking a lot about we don't have time for people to write all these conceptual papers and be mm-hmm. analytic um, whatevers. Like we don't have time to do that. We can do what Megan's talking about and translate the work of others um, into our language and use behavior analysis to design interventions like that's what we we're really good at and we need to move so we can't all wait to get all on the same page about how to address this um we need to start moving now mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think and i think what you've talked about tonight is as far as um being uncomfortable is mm-hmm. is a great place to start it's like when something shows up and and you're uncomfortable like pay attention to that yes it's, it's okay acknowledge that mm-hmm. just sit with it for a mm-hmm. moment um, see what shows up. There's something in there for you. Hey, pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, for mm-hmm. sure. Yep. Um, all right. Okay. So I think we're going to go ahead and take this out. Um, homework for our listeners this week, I think, could eulogy. You do Evelyn's <laughs> exercise. Yeah. To can, I, can I add one thing to that? Can mm-hmm. I submit it to you so you can read it on the show? yes oh can people submit theirs to us and we can read it like oh gosh, that would be yes. really cool if we carry so on as we are versus if we were to realize our dreams and Skinner's dreams yes field. so send it to us and we're going to yes. read it and yes. shout you out that'll be you awesome send us yours um, to Evelyn. but one thing i also wanted to say was because in the very beginning i wrote i, ta- I take notes throughout the show but i wrote down something about um like your goal. So whether that's a diversity statement or something versus the outcomes and your behavior that you have. And if your organization has some sort of diversity goal or some, or statement or something like that, or an organization, or if like you're a part of one of these state ADA organizations mm-hmm. or something like that, and you say that you're dedicated to diversity to take just a look, just do a quick, just scan analysis. What are your measurements? What are your measurements? <laughs> Right. How are we how are we determining that? Are we just inviting one speaker to join and saying, check, we've done that? Or are we incorporating that? Like I wrote down, too, because I'm in the process of um, 
organizing a conference that's going to happen in June. And I wrote down because there are all these things that I'm thinking about and I've contacted people, but it's like, like we need an advisory board of all, like of a wide variety of people to say, how can we make this more accessible? Like I have all these ideas in terms of like equity and um, all, all of these things. Um, but it's like, all right, like that isn't enough. So it's what, what comes next, you know, like how can we get people to conferences? How can, you know, so um, it's, but it's like, all right, like this is, that would be my statement is that uh, that's a value of mine, but am I actually hitting that? And I'm not like right now I'm not, and I can acknowledge that. So um, I'm going to go back to one other group. suggestion yeah. before we hang up and that we also as a field get over ourselves and actually look at what other people are doing <laughs> Yes, because please. there are smart people outside of our field and they people that have been doing this work for a long time so if you instead of because otherwise we're not going to go anywhere either there, in, in terms of measurable things what should we be caring about what are them the outcome measures we should be thinking about or whatever like other people have figured that out like a lot of people have figured out some stuff mm -hmm. a lot of people have already been trying to figure out how you make a conference more diverse and equitable yeah. So we don't have, it's not reinventing the wheel. Like we do need to do our own work. We definitely need to do our own work. We're in our own culture as well. So we need to be mindful of that. But we also can look for smart people outside of our field who know what they're talking about and have a lot of the answers um, already there. Can I say something? And this isn't just about the conference planning, but just to go a little bit into what you just said, Evelyn. When we're looking outside of our field, know that we can also look at non-academics because those who were academics, they were writing based on what people on the ground were telling them. And so if you look back in history, all the major movements, they're not they're not led by people who were uh, PhDs that were working in labs and working really? with animals or whatever. <laughs> they're not they're not written by these people like our our movements were not moved by researchers or academics. And so we need to be willing to listen to regular people that are telling us what they need and, and actually accepting that. Like if the only people that you're able to listen to is someone who has a PhD or a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree, then you're actually, you're not really moving um, in accordance to saying that you recognize yeah, all people, right? Because it's ignoring some like of the I data, said, isn't it? It's, like, yeah. just, it's as if we go in and we don't like that data. We're just going to look at this data. Exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, and that, and that's part of the elitism that comes with just um our educational uh system. And like, if you're educated, then we're just like, oh, we're only going to listen to other smart people because they've proven themselves and they can get through this. Um, but not if they're outside analysis, because then they're not. Then they don't count. They're not smart. Oh yeah, you don't count. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I would um, definitely encourage folks to just you know, listen to regular folks. They, you know, and I, just, and I mean, people like that are outside of your, um, your general vicinity or, you know, that are not doctors or writing academic articles. There are so many more people that have a lot to tell us about the world. If we just would listen um, with our eyes and our ears and be open to that. And as I, as I keep saying, Denisha, they're not tacting nothing, right? Yes. It's because some, just when there's a whole bunch of people that are using a word that sounds like mentalism, it drives me crazy when people overuse that word, but they're not tacting nothing, right? The rest of the world cares about this stuff. So we do need to listen. They're tacting something important. Yes. Exactly. 
I love when you say that too, Evelyn. <laughs> so I hope our listeners hear that and remember that. Folks are not tacting nothing. Dot, dot, dot. All right. Erin, <laughs> did you have anything else you wanted to say before we take this on out of here? Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank for you, coming folks. on the show. <laughs> yes. Thanks Thank you for so much me. for being with us tonight. It's an honor. I'm oh, sure you'll man. be back. <laughs> I, you have I to come be, back. You will have me. I will always come back. <laughs> Yay. Perfect. All right. Thank you all for uh, tuning in today. I hope that we can continue the conversation online. And I hope that you write your eulogies and submit them to Aaron and I so we can read them off on our next show or next couple of shows. But if you're not following us, make sure to follow us on Facebook at Beautiful Humans Cast or Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and uh, share your thoughts with us. So once again, thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Tune in for the next show. It's Tanisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.